Good morning. Welcome to the Long Live Alternative Parties podcast. Free Press Media Press Inc. and Alternative Parties Books Publisher sponsors this podcast. I'm Andrew Bouchard. Greetings. Greetings. Welcome to the Long Live Alternative Parties podcast. Long Live, what a classic. <laughs> yes. You Friends. are heralding the times of your of their victory. Uh, triumph, their calls of triumph. Beautiful. Yes. Yes. Friends, today we have the American Shopping Party on, and we're going to hear about all the interesting stuff that they stand for and do. So let's get started by you kindly giving us an introduction to yourself, a brief biographical sketch. My name is Raghu Jufre, uh, a.k.a. John Jufre. Grew up as a Hare Krishna kid, the oldest of the second generation of them. My mom sent me off to India to learn and study the Vedas. I was a preacher from 18 to about 26, and from that point on, uh, uh, an entrepreneurial junkie from helicopter parts to putting together uh, airlines for India to import-export business to $20 million dollars worth of real estate in about five years between New York, uh, California, anyway, nationally, and uh, culminated with uh, Ragunomics, which is um, now finishing up book number 18 of uh, Economic, Social, Political Policy Proposals. Uh, the American Shopping Party was the sort of the... Um, uh, the, the holding, the holding uh, community center uh, to begin presenting these proposals to the world. Okay, so how did you come to start the shopping American Shopping Party, and how did you arrive at that name? So uh, there's several factors in there. I'll tell you what motivated the, the first motivation of it. And then what the the uh, social political function and what the uh, theological upgrade to our political uh, system today. So what motivated it was um, having discovered this was uh, book number two, a simple solution to the 2004 real estate crisis, um, which was made of two components. The first of that was. Um, a mortgage program that would reduce everybody's uh, mortgage 50%. So in LA, people are paying $5,000 a month for their home. This would cut it in half to 2,500 or those with 2,500 would drop down to 12 and those at 12 would be $600 a month. Uh, the formula was amusingly simple. Uh, it was in recognizing that about 20% of all the interest is paid in the first four years 20 to 30 percent, depending on the interest rate. So simply by passing that uh, interest in that first four years, we were able to reduce payments by 25 percent. Uh, we added in a couple other additional simple steps. And lo and behold, it reduces everybody's mortgage 50 percent. So that was part one. Part two was that in outlining the benefits of this, we came to discover that the bulk of Wall Street was made up in a special primarily or especially so of real estate is made up of a series of duplicate financial products. So a mortgage, a securitized mortgage, a credit default swap, which is an interest 
on the mortgage, a second mortgage and a PMI, which are basically the same thing. PMI is the insurance should a home default. And the second mortgage is made of that last 20% of the second mortgage. Um, and derivatives, all uh, which combined um, make about 12 separate financial Wall Street products. So what happened is twofold. The first is, is that a number of institutions wrote those um, quote-unquote liabilities off. So in the an example of Lehman Brothers, they went from $800 billion down to $20 billion, I believe, in about 10 days or a week. So that's a write-down. So what nobody recognizes, that write-down was, in fact, a reduction against people's mortgages. And so if they would have then refinanced homes against all of these write-downs, we would have been able to have written off between 25 to as much as 75% uh, of every mortgage in the U.S. because it had already been written down by the banks. Instead, what happened is the U.S. government stepped in, kept these financial institutions, the derivative uh, company, the uh, credit defaults, the PMI insurance uh, corporate holders, um, and then bought them all up. So right now, our federal deficit is made up starting of $5 trillion, probably closer to 10 maybe even $15 trillion worth of these duplicate financial products. And so that so-called $10 trillion worth of U.S. deficits, uh, if we were to refinance the house, uh, all residential real estate in the U.S., we would be able to eliminate between 25 to 50% of that entire uh, liability. And so the U.S. government would instantly be able to erase, uh, would be able to instantly erase uh, five to as much as $15 trillion worth of, of deficits. Uh, so you would now have people that have um, their mortgages cut in half, and U.S. deficits would be cut between 20 to as much as 50%. So um, I decided to run for office here in Hawaii when the uh, senator decided to run for governor. So his seat opened up with a special election. I thought, well, this would be a perfect uh, occasion to go out and get media attention to announce this simple solution to the housing real estate crisis and the RADA mortgage, which stands for Real Estate Association for Depreciating Housing Assets. Of course, uh, you know, there is no media attention for third parties. Um, so then I thought, well, let's give it a try. On the next one, I'll run as a Republican. Republicans have no chance of ever winning. So I thought, well, they might be receptive to uh, giving me a spot in order to announce this. This would be international news that we just found a simple solution. It's really nothing more than an accounting mistake, just the way we, we framed it which is to say that if you simply recognize the problem, uh, that in of itself would instantly reset the markets. The biggest issue that we were facing in 2008 was nobody knew where the bottom was. This would put a floor on the market instantly and that we could then begin building what to speak of refinancing and flushing out all the duplicate uh, liabilities that actually are not a liability that have already been paid off. Um, so, the Republicans were offended that somebody without Republican ideals would want to use their party to do a what they uh, viewed as a, a, a separate agenda from low taxes and um, smaller government. But that's their message. It doesn't matter 
that we could reduce uh, mortgages, that we could reduce deficits. Uh, we would be able to supply people with three times the um, disposable income. So, of course, I lost the primary, and so I was shut out. And I was like, okay, in order for me to be able to make it past the primaries and be one of the last remaining uh, candidates, uh, I would need to start my own political party. And the expectation was is that the media would then cover me because of, you know, 90% or 80% of the candidates have been eliminated. And I don't know why I was entirely surprised, but of course, as a matter of principle, at least here in Hawaii, they do not cover third party. Um, all the media is already, um, is, uh, I don't even want to call it a backroom deal. Um, generally, they'll just tell you up front, we support our, you know, Democratic candidates or in uh, a few cases, Republicans, there is no room for discussion. So um, I was able to, I was going through a great transition at that point. I just divorced, had no money, uh, and uh, I had to come and, and take care of things for my mom here. So I wasn't able to put in the kinds of time and resources in order to build it out. But it was at that point that I realized how extraordinarily critical it is to have third parties. And that is to be able to introduce conversations that are outside the two parties. And it just so happens that it appears that in a number of issues, as much as 90% of an issue is overlooked in the debates between the two political parties. And so then I realized that the American Shopping Party could provide that forum of conversation to be able to have a space to bring in new ideas um, that would actually serve to improve uh, whatever the issue is dramatically. Um, and so that brings me back to my first book of Ragunomics. So the rod of mortgage and um, this idea of being able to reset the entire U.S. economy and eliminate one-third to as much as 50% of the U.S. deficits, that program was called Leverage Debt Reduction, which is to say that when you pay off a securitized mortgage and you pay off a uh, credit default swap, an insurance policy on a securitized mortgage, you've automatically paid off the derivative. You've already automatically paid off the um, government uh, deficit, and you've paid off the home's homeowner's mortgage proportionally to it. So it means you pay off one, it automatically pays off its duplicate uh, its duplicate debts um, across the board. So that was two books, uh, but the first book was called um, Lifestyle. It is for what we refer to as lifestyle insurance. And this began, this was an outgrowth of my days as a preacher. And uh, I had just gotten back from India in 84, I believe. Nine, uh, 84, it must have been 94. Uh, 94, 96. And Bill Clinton, the president at the time, had just come out against tobacco. And so we had all these headlines screaming that there was a $100 billion being spent every year to cover the uh, health care medical costs for smokers. Now, this is back when $100 billion actually used to be a lot of money. Um, and I believe at the time that was the size of the gross national product of India. So you have a billion and a half people who all combined um, is as much as what we're spending just on the healthcare for smokers. Now, being a 
you know, they call it virtue signaling. In my day, it was called the preacher. And I was like, well, if it's $100 billion a year, that's a trillion a decade. Um, for smoking, how much would it cost for all the vices combined? Um, and so I figured it'd run between a half a trillion to $2 trillion a year. Um, after um, I made some money in real estate, um, I took that money, I hired an economics group, and uh, it took about uh, five months to find them. This economics group is the go-to guy for all the bad boys. You know, the uh, Gaming Association of Atlanta, the Brewers of America, uh, Liggett's, I, I believe it is, uh, the largest tobacco company out of England. Economists that they, they go to to do their numbers. And so um, the numbers coming from that uh, organization would be indisputable. So I said, you know, can you give me the numbers? And I said, uh, we are, we're the ones that do those numbers. You know, that's easy to do. We're happy to do it. And he said, the problem is, is, is that there's such a dispute. Uh, there's such a variance between studies. You have the industry studies, which keep it very low. And then you have the critic study, which seems to inflate the numbers. So the way we handled that is take four to six studies, average it out. We'll start with the average, but then we'll also look at the low end and we'll look at the high end. And the thinking was, is that if we could come up with policy proposals that dealt with the high end, then you'd be able to handle every other scenario. So let me ask you this to um, give you an example of how dramatic it is. How much do you think America spends covering the health care of obesity-related uh, services every decade? I don't want to get too low on this, so... How about a trillion? Close, two trillion. Now, two trillion. you got comfortable saying a trillion because I kept talking trillions, but I, you know, we have a, a little video on it. We went and asked people, and it was hard for the brains to make it past like 40 billion or 80 billion or a couple hundred billion. And so when they would hear two trillion, just like the brains would just short circuit. And so to provide them a sense of context of how much two trillion is, uh, that would be 300 aircraft carriers. So uh, every decade. So in the last 30 years, it's a thousand aircraft carriers just for obesity. So then I would ask them, what do you think is the cost if that, um, that expense was divided equally between all junk foods and fattening foods? Soda pops, ice cream, pizzas, so if you're to buy a slice of pizza for five bucks, how much more would we have to pay in order to cover that cost? Remember, it's $2 trillion over the decade. And if it's divided up equally between every slice of pizza and every soda pop, what would the average uh, cost be to cover that? Extra $5? So this is a typical response. You hear $2 trillion, you think it would cost between 50 to 200% the price of the item. And here's where the clincher is. It's only 10 cents. <laughs> right. You pay the 10 cents when you buy your $5 slice of pizza, and you now have universal health care for all of these related services for free. It's the most, it is the, the world's single most affordable um, insurance uh, premium. It's not a tax, it's an insurance premium. The difference being is the government sets the price of taxes, which uh, has 
so much room for corruption, for example, with the cigarette tax, um, the cost per pack runs about four bucks in social costs out of the one trillion a decade that it costs uh, for them. Um, divided up equally, it runs about four bucks. Uh, but here, uh, here in Hawaii, they are charging uh, 10 and 12 bucks. And in New York, um, they'd gotten as high as 14. It's now three times the price. In addition to it, you're having to pay an, addi- uh, an additional 22, as much as 40% on your health insurance premium. So out of that double charge on tobacco, practically none of it actually ever goes to the smokers. So now you have this government policy that's just gone in and uh, just mercilessly uh, pillaging uh, the smokers uh, because once they've been demonized, it justifies just sort of, you know, what do you call it? Highway robbery. What's that word? I mean, you're gouging. Um, and so it took uh, 60 years in order for the government to recognize that there's a price penalty. And now they've gone just over the top the other way. Insurance, on the other hand, the insurance companies allowed to charge exclusively for the price. You're not allowed to, you know, you can throw some profit on top of it, 10, 20, 30%. The average is about 20%. And they scream bloody uh, murder about the uh, dreadful exploitation of insurance companies for that uh, 20% difference. But it doesn't compare to, at least in this case of tobacco, how much higher and how much more the government will charge for it. So um, we're saying that uh, there's four primary benefits of a lifestyle-related um, healthcare program. Number one is, is that 50% of all medical costs is lifestyle-related. So if we all covered our own lifestyle uh, healthcare costs, we would be able to reduce our insurance premiums starting at 50%. Number two, one of the big advantages that lifestyle has is that it has a retail counterpart to finance it. So you have cigarettes for smokers, you have alcohol for drinkers, you have ju- uh, junk food for for um, obesity. And so we can now remove 50% of the cost of our healthcare insurance premiums simply by people um, taking the responsibility for it. And that's how I had started the approach of it. Um, and everyone's reaction was like, you know, so when I first did this, again, this was in the 90s when the tobacco companies were the giants and everyone was like, the tobacco companies are never going to do it. Here we are today paying double or three times the price of their actual social cost. Um, but the big issue was that nobody ever took a look to see what was involved with them paying it. So all I did was take a look at it. The long and short of all of this is that these are the kinds of discussions that are completely overlooked, and then uh, they call it du- du- uh, was that duopoly, the two-party system, but it's really just one party. You know, it's the same companies, you know, um, playing both sides of an issue, which seem to culminate with exactly the same result every time. Companies make more money, we lose benefits, and um, are having to pay more money. Um, so you have the Democrats that are insisting that government care is the way to go. You have the Republicans insisting that uh, market-based health care is the way to go. They both know that lifestyle, almost without exception, most politicians know that lifestyle is 50% of the health care costs, as do a surprising number of, of the public. Somehow or other, somebody went around the country 
and educated everybody that lifestyle is really expensive, runs about 50%. You mentioned that to people, and they're like, yeah. So even though everybody knows this, nobody's taking a second look at it because the two parties aren't about health care. They're about using it to beat up on the other side. And Obamacare is the perfect example of it, wherein um, you had Obama. And I could see that a, a lot of Obama's confidence was that he was going to bring in democratic values with Republican uh, 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 Republican approaches. And so his confidence was is that I'll be able to get both sides together. And so his health care is nothing more than Mitt Romney's health care proposal. And then as a matter of political principle, if it is being presented by the other team, you have to sabotage it. So even though it's a the Obamacare is really just a, a Republican health care proposal, they had to uh, do everything they can to stop me and shut it down and resist it as they did with everything else that Obama did. So we have this duopoly that won't look at any other alternatives. And even with their own policies made of the same uh, think tanks, you know, think tanks that are sponsored by the same corporate overlords. Um, even then, it's being sabotaged. And so this is where the political um, third parties can really um, play the critical difference. And that is opening up the conversation to a series of alternative um, inputs and approaches that is not possible. It is impossible for these two parties to do it. They have to maintain control. Uh, if you lose the majority in the, you know, in the House or uh, in this uh, in in Congress, you you lose your ability to be able to function. They have to keep the messaging really simple, and they have to do it on the basis of their principles. But uh, this is what took us to, and this brings us to the theology. Really, what the issue is is not even political corruption or. Um, uh, incompetency. Really, the greatest problem is that the theology of the left and right, that paradigm of Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal, that paradigm itself is outdated. And I realize what we need is a new theology that is representative of a modern world. These theologies hardly worked, you know, 100, 150 years ago when they were invented. Um, so as an example, what is the punchline of capitalism? The punchline? Yeah, so they say capitalism is based upon what? Profit. It's all about, what is it? Profit. Profit. So now we're in a world that is um, being led not by profit motive, but by market share motive. So you, you really saw this um you know, in the, the, the 90s and then especially in the early 2000s, you know, 2000 uh, to 2015, where all these new companies were coming, all these new countries were coming in and they weren't working for profit. They were working for market share. Toyota and the Japanese companies, they weren't working for profit. They were working for market share. Saudi Arabia had cut, had not cut their profit margin, but they had cut the cost that, they had cut the, the cost to the point of a liability. They were losing money with every barrel they sold uh, in order to destroy the competition. Uh, China was dumping. 
all these different countries were dumping their products in order to win market share at the expense of the rest of the companies. And those companies were primarily capital, uh, capitalist paradigm, Western and American companies. And so the U.S. auto industry lost 50 percent of the of the industry quality was one, but also because it's profit geared versus market share based. So in the 21st century, uh, with the economies of scale exponentially um, multiplied uh, through technology, greater the market share, you have an ex- an, a, a multiple, an exponential multiple on your price efficiencies and, um, and infrastructure to uh, access and political sway, et cetera. So that capitalist model of, of you know, profit as the bottom line is so outdated. And on the other side, you have socialism, capitalism, which is about sharing the profits of labor. Uh, just when we are facing um, the final phase of automation, so both of those paradigms are are completely outdated. And uh, we used to be able to make up for these shortfalls, which were growing with each. Uh, each decade and each election style with compromise. And the compromise was fueled by, uh, they used to be able to just bribe their, you know, congressional or uh, senators with, um, you know, we'll give you an extra billion dollars to build, you know, a library for, you know, on your, your cousin's land, whatever the case is, they removed that. So now there's not even a financial uh, ability to bribe the, uh, members of Congress to cooperate. And so all that's left is an outdated theology. So the American Chopping Party then uh, decided to work to finding what are the baselines of a theology for a modern world. And so it was at that point that I realized that we don't have a political, social, or economic problem, but we have a, a, a philosophical one. Um, and so uh, I look back to my roots and, uh, you know, my spiritual master, his birthday actually yesterday, he was all about self-sustainability, cottage industry, agrarian based and um, cow protection. And this interfaced really well with Gandhi's economic program. So Gandhi's economic program was the same thing, self-sustainability, uh, local businesses versus those of, of Europe and England. And so that um, translated into the American Chopping Party. The American Chopping Party uh, is just sort of fun and easy, and it, 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 it interfaces with the highlights that everyone recognizes we want to need economically, let's speak of politically. And that is we wanted to get 15% of the people to buy local, locally made or American made, we call it local American, one day a month and the first Friday of each month. Uh, 15% of Hawaii would be um, about 300,000. For California, that would be 6 million, and nationally, that would be 50 million. So we wanted to have this um, army of dedicated buyers for local American made one day a month. You show up with 50 million shoppers, every store is now going to carry something local American on that day. Um, in Hawaii, it was a great place to start because we have a million point three 
residents against what used to be 10 million tourists. So if we could have gotten 20 with the speak of 40 or 50% of that 10 million tourists, that would be a 500% uh, increase for local business literally overnight. Um, so the first was, this is our action step. The second was uh, to find what we have in common cause. So what uh, the result of having these outdated, um, uh, what do they call them? Uh, what do they call the political philosophies? Ideologies. Ideologies. So um, now that we don't have compromise, and now that we are not able to bribe members of Congress, what's filling the gap for the shortfall of these ide ideological models is uh, intransigency and fighting. And so everyone says that we need to get along. You're never going to be able to get along once you're working with, first of all, capitalism and communism, socialism was built in an era of antagonistic conflict. This idea of being able to get along was not part of the was not part of the um, the uh, what do they call it the it wasn't in the genes. This whole idea of getting along this is all new. Before everything was done at the expense of every uh, of other people, it used to be you know just going and slaughtering each other, and then it became a, a ideological one, and so you had to like you know defeat and crush the, the communists and the socialists. So this idea of, of getting along is just not in the the genesis of, of the those philosophies. So what's left is, uh, the only thing that's really left on the table is an ever higher level of screeching um, terror against the other party. It's not even about conflict anymore. It's really about how far can we terrorize each other. So the American Shopping Party recognized that we need to start where Gandhi started. So uh, Gandhi got his, uh, he got his, um, schooling and uh what they call the lawyers back in the day was it solicitors barristers barristers i think it was a barrister. anyway he got that in england he, he practiced in england and he went to south africa and he got you know he got a small taste of organizing indians uh, and then he went to india uh with his experience there and i believe he had spent like a year or two just sort of taking note. And there was literally a thousand, not a thousand, there was like a million and one issues to, to jump on the bandwagon with. So people don't recognize it. People look at India as a single country, but actually the 26 states that comprise the United States of India um, are as dramatically different, if not more so, than the countries of Europe. So the difference between Germany and Spain and Spain and France and France and England and England uh, to um, um, uh, Italy um, in terms of having a different language, having a different dress style, architecture, food, religion, that's as dramatic or more so in India. So you had that competition uh, internally with those countries. They were actually different countries. Um, and then you had the Muslim, I mean, it wasn't just the Muslim, you had the, you had the, uh, you had the Punjabis with, you know, and their issues with the Hindus. And then, you know, the center between all of those was the Hindu Muslims. Uh, and then on top of that was the British using everyone's div divisiveness to exploit them, divide and conquer. 
So Dante was like, where do you start? And so he recognized that you need to find that one thing that brings everybody together. Do you happen to know what that one thing is that he used to unite the country? That's a tough question. Is it that I can't venture an answer for that? It was the salt march. He went to the Muslims and he said, uh, guys, you know, you're having rice three times a day and you're putting salt on it, but it's illegal to get salt. Uh, the British have monopolized that business. So would you be willing to join me for a little walk to the beach and we'll make the salt and there's going to be so many of us that the British can't really do much about it. And it's like, sure, that sounds great. And then he went to the Hindus and said, hey, you know, your Hindu brothers, excuse me, our Muslim brothers are going to take a walk to the beach. You want to join us for that? Uh, and this was like, you know, thumbing our nose to England. And they're like, sure. And so <laughs> the rest are like, as if a little salt's going to, you know, take down the might of the British Empire. And it did. Why? They were economically dependent on it. It took down the British Empire. Why did it? Why were they able to successfully remove the British from India? I've heard a lot of different theories about that, so I'm not sure how to answer that. It's a tough question. First and foremost was because they started learning to work together. They found their common cause. And so what I found is, is that all the other political parties have two elements in them. The first is they're still made up of the same ideology as the outdated conservative versus liberal model. There's nothing new. So all they're talking about is that if we had a pure capitalism, which is outdated, or a pure socialism, which is outdated, we would be able to take care of our problems, but it won't work in a modern day. And we're just now beginning to have that, you know, starting to wake up to it. It's like, we're not going to be able to pay people because there's going to be no jobs. And so what is the next step to that? So first of all, I haven't seen a political party for the most part that isn't based upon that uh, ideological uh, template. I mean, it's like, it's the difference between, a, it's almost the difference between a rotary phone and an iPhone. That's how outdated it is. And then the second thing is that the bulk of it is based upon niche conflicts. That if we just push harder, so it's either one of those two and generally both of those. American Shopping Party is saying, what is the updated version uh, of our um, ideological model? And so we found those, they're not middle grounds. It's not like these are the things that are slipping through the cracks. It's that in general, the so-called cracks represent between 40 to as much as 90% of any given issue that's just completely overlooked. So with healthcare, lifestyle is 50%. Uh, in the case of pro-choice or pro-life, pro-choice is based upon something of a lifestyle, that my lifestyle and I want to have the freedom to do that. And, and pro-life is, uh, well, it's a, it's a moral quandary and I'm just not going to take the life of my child. But about between 80 to 90 percent of the reason for an abortion is social economic. And so um, the pro-choice and pro-life sort of completely overlooked that 80 percent of the issue. And so we introduced the idea of pro-mom. What can we do to build out 
the social economic considerations wherein it becomes a true choice. Because right now, if the choice is I have a kid and I'm penalized intergenerationally with poverty, crime, and social um, uh, isolation, almost criminalized, oh, you had a kid and you don't have a partner, stuff like that, then that's not a choice. You're blackmailed into having the abortion uh, in order to save uh, you know, your kid from uh, intergenerational crime and poverty. Um, so we looked at a, a number of different models for that, start that conversation. So as an example, uh, the Hawaiian model was grandma was the mom. So mom would have the kids, she would hand it over to grandma, and grandma had the social stature, had the maturity level, and had the uh, economic stability to be able to take care of the kids. And so this left Hawaiians, I believe, as the first truly feminist uh, movement in history. They were the most, pretty much one of the single most liberated women uh, of any society because all those social um, economic penalties had been removed by grandma stepping in to take care of the kids. And, um, you know, by Western standards of the day, they were, you know, that would have been a floozy, which is to say they could have multiple partners. They could have, you know, dads from uh, kids from multiple dads because the, the, there wasn't a, a, a economic penalty for them. Another one is the extended family. So here in Hawaii, you have the um, you have the Filipino families. You have the um, somewhat the Chinese families. You have the uh, Hawaiian families, uh, Macronesians especially, but Polynesians in general. Uh, so when that 15-year-old girl has a kid, you know, you got grandma and auntie and uncle and niece and nephew and brothers and sisters. You know, and in India, I remember because I was there for five years going to school, the moms had to like fight the family off to like, okay, this is my kid, hands off. I want to get some time in with my kid. So again, it didn't have that isolation and penalty that women have here in a um, isolated, broken family culture where, you know, the best case scenario is a core family. You know, rarely, if ever, is there an extended family to help step in and take care of them. So that extended family really is a, an, a really exceptional counterpart. Um, another one was uh, Russia and France, where in both cases they are recognizing the population implosion. And so it began to highlight the value of having um, mothers for their people. And so they started extending an ever-growing number of benefits. And as Michael Moore said in his uh, film, I forgot which one it was, he was saying, you know, the welfare moms in France um, have stature. Here's a car. Here's a great home. We'll send you, I think, maids, and they do your laundry for you. And, you know, he's always so cheeky about it. Uh, but they were able to start recognizing the, the real value of motherhood. And then uh, in, in, in India, they have the dowry system. And the idea of the dowry system is, is that you're buying the young newlywed couple uh, four to eight years of financial stability. And so you sort of see this repeated with uh, cultures such as, uh, you know, the Jews, when somebody gets married, the community really comes together and they really help them with uh, thousands, tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of dollars to help them get started. So these are examples of other cultures that have dealt with the same issue uh, that are not only uh, very effective, 
for almost any given time or, or situation, but are actually very prevalent here in the U.S. And it's not like you have to roll the program out as so much as empowering it and identifying it. So again, this was another issue. It doesn't have to get mired in the minefield of the pro-choice, pro-life, uh, excuse me, pro-choice, pro-life. Uh, we're calling it pro-mom. So this is what the function that the American Shopping Party wanted to introduce. What are the what are the third party con, uh, third party considerations that are being overlooked in a form resource center for it? What do we have in common cause? And um, I forgot what the third one was. So uh, that is the American uh, Shopping Party, and you could have seen what a, a big difference it would have made. We had thirty million small businesses as of a year and a half ago, uh, anywhere between. Um, a minimum, from what I understand, of 30%, and in a number of places, 50% of all small businesses have now closed. And we're now beginning to see, um, for the first time, the uh, lifestyle, quality of life that they were adding to um, our communities and to our life. And so we're beginning protective of it. Um, so more than ever, this idea of coming together in common cause uh, positively uh, with a form without the political minefields and ideological antagonism um, with simple, very effective and far-reaching uh, economic impacts. So those are the, uh, that was uh, sort of a summary of the American Shopping Party. So here's a question. Since Gandhi as you were mentioning his story, you mentioned how he was able to unite people by the common cause. They had a common So some people would say that a nation needs a common enemy. Do you see that as necessary or was that just a particular in Gandhi situation? Well, actually it was different because Gandhi was trying to show them that the issue about the British conquerors or the Muslim-Hindu um, intergenerational conflict was really secondary to finding the positives of what they were about. And what these... They were, excuse me. So, um, so he wasn't preaching nonviolence. Oh, so let's, let's just talk a little bit more about Gandhi and his nonviolence and, and non-cooperation, civil disobedience. Those were part uh, two and three and so everyone jumps to civil disobedience or nonviolence. Step one was getting everybody on the same page. So I just want to uh, sort of uh, backtrack a little bit to the American Shopping Party. So our principles are, number one, uh, we have no negatives. Whatever it is you don't like, find the positive alternative of it, and we'll help promote that. Number two, we only work with what 90% of the people agree with. So as an example, uh, if we could take um, 50 million people and plant 20 trees, that's a half a billion trees. And we could do it in like three hours, one afternoon. Um, 40, uh, 45 bucks would take care of um, about 50% of all higher education, the cost of higher education. So the idea is that we get together one day a month and one month we would take care of planting the trees. The next month we would 
take care of our college kids. The next month after that would take care of our seniors and our vets and our home gardens. And then, uh, and so we'd come together in common cause with the fun things that are extremely productive. Um, and so that is what uh, Gandhi was able to do. So we have a, a six point pledge. Number one, the commitment to buy locally made on that one day a month. Um, and like in Hawaii, you could see what the multiplier of that was. Number two is to ask three friends and family to join you. That's the grassroots. We need grassroots. It's about reaching out and finding our common bonds. Number three is to ask a store, please show me you're locally made. That's the outreach uh, to the community. Number four is to wear something locally made. Uh, and this is where it really kicks in, both um, as a practitioner, you look in your closet and you'll find that you have like four things that are locally made. Um, and the flip side is, is, is that a lot of the uh, local stuff is like accessories, you know, the hats and scarves and the jewelry and things like that. Um, and then uh, number six, uh, number five is making something with your hands. So every month, you know, one month it will be um, making pot, pottery. Oh, I mean, this pandemic really just sort of summarized it. How is it that something that takes literally two minutes to make a mask, to sew a mask, we were dependent on China to provide us the masks. I mean, that's just absurd, the, the level of incompetency. So we should all have like a little sewing machine in our home and, you know, one month we'll all make shirts, next month we'll all make masks, next month we'll make, you know, dresses or whatever the case is. Anyway, things with our hands really bring back the culture of, of arts and crafts and artisanship. And last but not least is 20 bucks. 20 bucks times the 300,000 residents here in Hawaii would be uh, 6 million, which would allow us to throw the hottest party here in Hawaii every month. Uh, of course, for California, that's uh, almost $150 million. And nationally, at 20 bucks times 50 million people is a billion dollars. So again, just a small contribution. Um, so this comprised of the Gandhi revolution, which is we take the individual responsibility to be there for our businesses. We reach out to our friends and family to join us. Uh, we ask the businesses to join us. In Gandhi's case, he was saying no British goods. In our case, it's not about no against anything. It's about on this one day, we want to highlight our local. It's not in opposition to anything. It's about empowerment of who we are. Um, and then, uh, again, the same thing, uh, keeping track of what we own and, and celebrate that on that day by wearing it. And then what can we do to start building out our, our handcrafts? So these are all Gandhi-esque um, programs. Uh, with that, and you don't need an enemy to do it. And in fact, um, we, oh, so this brings us to number four. We punish through irrelevancy. We're not here to, um, you know, attack anybody or um, tell them how horrible they are. We just want to empower those things that are representative of what we are. So really, the American Shopping Party is just a sort of a funner, bigger, easier um, version of, of the Gandhi Revolution. Huh. No enemies required. I'm sorry, yeah. Right. No enemies, you said? I said no enemies required for this one. Okay. All the other political parties, without exception, they have to have their enemy. 
So what shut us down in this last election, hired, uh, was working with a buddy. He put together just an amazing team. And uh, we had a grand event. And we were going to use that event for our fundraiser. And uh, uh, his brain short-circuited. He got a little tweaked. He erased everything so we couldn't do our fundraiser. So then we chose a presidential candidate, uh, Brock Pierce, a billionaire uh, child star, Hollywood child star, um, who's made his money off the crypto and seemed like a tech guy. Uh, he was very excited. He was going to come to Hawaii. He was going to campaign with us for uh, originally he was talking about two weeks and down to one week. And then the pandemic came in and said, if he comes, you're going to be in lockdown for 10 days. And he couldn't afford that time. And so because he didn't come, um, because he didn't come, uh, like we just never ended up getting him. So originally he was talking about putting in $50,000 cash to help, you know, build out the American shopping party uh, infrastructure with another consideration of a million dollars worth of pledges of, of shoppers without him coming here and actually getting the experience full uh, firsthand and creating the stir here and seeing how popular uh, we lost him. So then um, I hired uh, a company to do our website. They charged us for two months and they never did anything. Um, and to my surprise, uh, the bank just decided to pay it. And so we're just financially shut down. So the problem that we were having with launching the American shopping party was um, what they say, the product of your own success. Um, people's response to buying local uh, goes from sort of like, of course, to like a fervor, radical, oh my God, I already do that. That's great. Let's do it. And so the problem was, is that I just get run over. So if I tried to launch without having that back office system in place, I would just, I just, you know, if I, if I can't respond to them and I have no place to put them. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's data intensive. We need a, a website that would coordinate the retailers to the, the member buyers, to the product lines, to the producers alongside the event. So each of those is like its own data uh, platform. And we need a program that would bring all five of those together. So I just wasn't able to pull that together. So I never bothered trying to launch uh, because there's no question of being able to get the people. So when I first started this, I thought I was going to have to go out and educate the public about uh, the value of buying local. I thought I was going to have to get the, um, you know, educate the local businesses to um, get on board and then try to find manufacturers and highlight them and drive them through government uh, programs and incentives. It was just the opposite. I was totally blown away by the fervor of buying local and American. <laughs> like They spend more money. They'll go out of their way. They'll take more time to buy it, and they do this regularly. And so at first, I thought, well, 15% is just sort of a good place to start. I would say that there's a minimum of 15% of the people that already take this extra time, money, or effort to buy local or American. And in a number of places, you know, so over in Honolulu, it runs about 35 to 45%. Here on the big island of Hawaii, uh, which is the uh, different than what people think of Hawaii, which is Honolulu. On the big island, it starts at about 50%, 50 to 60%. When you get down to Puna, which is sort of like, you know, the hippie farmer countryside of the, the island, it runs like 80 to 90%. And that's true with a number, par, a number of places throughout the country. And so we would need a platform that would start at 50 million people, but probably by the end of the year, it would be like two or 300 million people. So I just haven't been able to find 
a platform yet uh, to uh, plug people into. And so I just didn't campaign in addition to the limitations uh, imposed by the, uh, the lockdown. So um, I will consider relaunching the American Shopping Party um, nationally if I can get that partnership. So um, I'm looking to maybe sell my house. They'll give me about uh, $200,000 in order to put into the platform. And that should be enough of a platform to then, you know, reach out to uh, get supporters. So, uh, you know, we only need 50,000 people to get a million dollars worth of um, financing. So I think we can get 50,000 people in a relatively, you know, a matter of weeks. Like, who's ready to buy local one day a month? Let me ask you this. Would you make a commitment to buy locally made one day a month? That is a good question. It's definitely one of my goals. It's one of the things I want to do more of. And I'm pushing myself. Now, it's it's a difficult situation if you are low on money. So if you need, you only have $5 to spend and you need groceries, it's very hard to go, not go to the one of the big chains. So that is tough. So depending on how that's worded, I would, it's, it's a good value that I want to support. In some circumstances I'm in sometimes, it makes it challenging. So it would be an aspiration. How would that sound? Well, um, this is actually was one of, um, this was actually a common refrain from a number of people. And again, I, I, I forgot to uh, tell you the other side of, you know, I said, I'm going to go and educate the shoppers, the retailers and the producers. And here's what I found. Number one, there was an overwhelming response from the, uh, the shoppers so i talked to like union guys for example and they would just be like you know stuttering with a thrill and excitement about how they wanted to do this just as an interesting side note i said let's talk to your union head and all of them just shut down like somehow or other in their minds unions wouldn't back this and that was just a very interesting phenomenon and then i did a march from pittsburgh to philadelphia uh by foot no money um and uh just as a side note um and i was uh to my surprise it was trump voters that were all about this this was you know 2016 first time i had the american shopping party on the ballot um it was trump voters and i just couldn't understand why like the democrats were just sort of a little reserved about jumping on with such enthusiasm um anyway so the the buyer the, the there is a very strong buyer already there um, and then when I approached the small businesses, what I found out is that when we talk about buying local or American, 70% of that is small business. <laughs> and so it's a pet peeve of theirs that like they get no extra brownie points for all the extra expense and time and effort it takes in order to provide this local stuff or American bait. Um, and then the third thing um, I discovered was um, just how much is actually made in America. We're, once you assembled it at all, it's 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 actually quite surprising how much is there. And now for the final clinch to the whole deal, increasingly we're becoming price competitive. So the American Shopping Party would basically just pull the curtain back on the reservations that you have to discover how much variety is there, how many outlets are offering it, and how increasingly price competitive it's becoming. 
And so the idea of the American Shopping Party is that we could go to these small businesses, find what their hottest product line is, and then try to scale that one product line. So rather than it just being every local American-made product in their store, we would take one. And then if we could scale it, the, uh, um, I, I think the sort of rule of thumb is, is that the price drops, I think it's 5 or 7% for every time it doubles. So if you can quadruple the volume, you can drop the price by 20 to 30%. And at that point, you're you're pretty well uh, price competitive with um, outside um, uh, outside imports. So, how do the small businesses get that volume? Because that's one thing they struggle with is having the volume. So that's where the American Traveling Party was becoming a resource center. That was the other side of it. So, in addition to uh, a platform that would coordinate. Uh, buyer, retailer, manufacturer, product line, and event, inevitably, we're going to have to become a resource center. So I thought that that would be, you know, I could tag team with like a small business um, service. Um, and that's where this became our political demand um, from the politicians. So what we wanted out of the system was uh, we had five simple demands. Number one, we wanted 1% of the government budget to go to small business and farmers. So that doesn't sound like a lot, but in Hawaii, that's actually $2 billion, which is just through the roof of, you know, um, um, a capital pool. for Like, we would be able to triple the volume of all uh, small businesses. I went to a number of small businesses. Uh, so one was a cacao farmer. And I said, so, like, how much money, you know, if you could get the money uh, as a combination of loan and grant, how much would you want? And like, as I'm finishing the sentence, she says $100,000. I said, what would $100,000 do? And I said, of that $100,000, how much would be a grant? How much would be a loan? She said, oh, about $25,000 grant and about uh, 65, um, 75 um, loan. And I said, what would that do for you? She said, I would get a cacao processor. And I said, so what would that do for your business? She said, it would start at double, probably triple, possibly quadruple my business. Um, I talked to a jeweler. And same thing, uh, 25, 35,000 grant and uh, 65, 75 uh, loan. And he said it, it, it wasn't like it wasn't like a doubling or a tripling. It was like a tenfold. So what I was uh, starting to uh, the pattern I was starting to see is, is that the smallest amounts of money have an exponential multiple for um, increased business for small businesses, especially in a place like Hawaii, where we had the tourism market. Uh, so uh, we wanted to go to the state and say, guys, it's 1%. It's 1% of your budget. you got to put it in 1% for our farmers and our small businesses. And, you know, when I would say this, to, like, you know, because I had to get the signatures from people, you could see, like, you know, eyes getting red with, like, just being pissed off that, like, they're not even giving 1% for uh, farmers and small businesses. Uh, number two, that um, it is a a state uh, function this one day a month. Uh, number three, that they help. So uh, as an example, the big hot spot for the tourists was uh, Honolulu, um, uh, especially Waikiki and Ala Moana. So Ala Moana is one of the highest end and uh, highly visited tourist centers in the world. So we would have our local farmers in there 
probably every weekend rather than just one day. So that would uh, the state would cover the airfare, would cover the booth spot, uh, would cover the advertising, um, and provide the loans in order to scale up for them being at Alamoana. So you have the Japanese girl coming in and she sees the little local farmer there, you know, showing them how to process the cacao and has a little name of their chocolate bar. And then that brings us to number three, which is, is that uh, the Japanese girl, you know, goes back to, to uh, Japan. And of course she's met the farmer. And so she's now a long-term consumer. So number three was that the state as an extension of their budgets, in addition to, cash on top to help build out the export market. And number four, so everyone's like, well, the state's never, you know, there's never enough money. If we triple the state budget, which I believe is, wait, what is the state budget? Um, is uh, $2 billion or $1.5 billion a year, whatever, whatever the case might be. Um, if you tripled that, they still wouldn't have enough money. Because it's all these special interests where all the money goes to it and like small businesses always left out of the loop. So rather than just waiting for the government to give the money, number four was is that we would get a tax credit against uh, taxes paid for the last five to ten years by the small business and their employees. Because the fact is the government doesn't actually have money. The money is actually coming in. in uh, from businesses and especially small businesses, all the big businesses get all the advantages and pay no taxes. All the small businesses get all the liabilities and pay and have to, you know, pay the full tax plus penalties. So the money's coming from small businesses anyway. We don't actually need the government to give them the money. So if you simply provided this tax recognition, uh, they would be able to get the money that they needed outside the government. So we don't need to go through the bureaucracy of the government to get the money. So those were the four demands of this election. For Hawaii. So this can work in other states as well then, huh? Well, I think that uh, it's not so much that it can as like, so what I was really after was to get Trump's attention. So they're like, uh, nominate Trump as the, you know, as your party candidate. And the problem was, is that none of them would guarantee getting this in front of Trump. I only needed to get enough media attention to get Trump's, you know, uh, get uh, Trump's attention. And he would have gotten us 80 million followers, like in a matter of hours. Now, with tr Trump jumping on, I could then go and beat up on the Democrats. It's like, guys, come on, you're supposed to be like the union and the workers and small businesses. You can't let, you know, you can't let Trump steal the show here. And then we could have gotten the Democrats to get, you know, their 80 million people. And we would have now had half the country on board to buy locally made by using the naturally inbuilt antagonism for defeating and crushing and outdoing the other political party. And we could have done it for small business. And so I was hoping I could do that by Christmas so that we could have had it. I was going to call it an American Christmas where we come together as one country to celebrate the best of who we are as one people on that one day. That still gives us 29 days to beat up on each other. You know, we can get back to the gladiator sports of, of, of conflict politics. But at one day a month, we should have a timeout. And yeah. what I wanted to do for November, and I was going to call it uh, Black Friday, American Black Friday. And that would be dedicated to 
um, African-American businesses and causes and to see if we could raise $150 billion between purchases, donations, and government grants for the African-American community. And so every month we had a different thing. We could have Europeans, then we could have Asians, and then we could have South American. And in addition to that, there would be four states highlighted uh, each month as well. And so uh, we would have a unique experience and a one-time a one special. You can't get it any other time. And this is really what uh, retailing is about now. Uh, it's about that experience and a specialty uh, sort of uh, commemorative and um, uh, one of a kind. So we'd really be able to build that out. So originally we were thinking of calling it, uh, or we sort of referred to it as the, um, uh, the uh, Amazon of patriotism. But um, I came to recognize that really patriotism is only one category. The actual categories is uh, uh, moral retail or moral consumption. And so that could either be about uh, environmental um, uh, or, or moral value, moral retail value, that we're now, the, the, the new luxury is morality, that this is made by unions or this is made by local women out in uh, Guatemala or this is made with companies that um, have the latest uh, environmental technologies to produce their products or it's made of recycled goods. And so this is this morality is the new luxury item of this generation. And so that's what the American Shopping Party. Sounds good. It's an idea I've not come across before. You do have a very original approach to a party. So this is from uh, directly taken from my childhood training, um, uh, Gandhi Revolution, and as uh, my spiritual master, uh, Prophet's economic plan. Uh, so it's just uh, uh, repackaging it that just so happens to have an ever-growing level of uh, relevancy and urgency. It's gone from relevant to uh, urgent. And uh, we'll see what the good Lord has in mind. Uh, so far, the... Uh, sabotage has been intense and the personal struggles on my side, you know, I'm the sole caretaker for my 78 year old mom. Um, we had a tenant didn't pay for five months. Uh, we almost went broke. It took about five. It took about uh, a year and a half to almost recover from that financially, um, among other personal challenges um, and a sabotage such as, you know, the design of the company just stealing my entire budget, basically. So I had no money left to be able to help with uh, my business and, and launching it. Uh, so how can you, Oh, just that. So I'm, I'm, you know, one thing that really inspired me was uh, this run, uh, this uh, governor, the California governor special election. Like if I could have run for that one, I would have won. I mean, because I grew up in L.A. I was there for uh, on and off uh, for about probably about 15 years over the last uh, nearly 50. Um, you know, because I was born in L.A., you know, third generation Italian American. Um, so I know all the issues. So uh, with water, the idea was that we should be pumping water in from uh, the melting glaciers out in Greenland and instead of having white, uh, uh, excuse me, iron, iron. Um, pipelines, um, inflatable ones made by DuPont. I wanted to reach out to DuPont 
uh, once they're inflatable, and I think I've cracked the code of what can make them as strong as uh, the cement and iron, but still have the flexibility um, of the inflatable. And so you could just be laying, you know, 100, 200 miles of these inflatables. Um, and you could basically be uh, drop shipping them from like helicopters and just roll them out and inflate them as you go along. And there's so many advantages. Uh, and uh, the idea originally actually wasn't to take care of the uh, water issues of, of California, but rather um, 80% of the um, horrific disasters of global warming is the melting ice caps. So once that desalinates uh, the salt levels of our oceans um, and, and rises the ocean levels, that's where the bulk of the uh, harm is done. So if we can uh, intervene at that, uh, that water going into the oceans, we might be able to sidestep um, um, various levels of that uh, disaster. And um, there's no reason why DuPont can't produce um, these inflatable. I mean, I, it, it's a relatively simple little uh, addition that should make them uh, both as hard. It's already flexible, so this should make it as hard and as straight as uh, cement. Um, and so the idea is, is that when we have these glaciers melting or going into the ocean, that would be preempted by pumping that water out. And there's plenty of places you know, in the world that could use it from the China's desert to India's desert to the African desert to the Australian desert to America's deserts, let's speak of LA. Um, so serious as we are, you know, we should put in a, a quarter of a trillion to a half a trillion dollars building out these pipelines. Um, and uh, because they're portable and they're modular, uh, if it's causing some kind of environmental damage, we can just you know, move them literally in a matter of days. Um, all the liabilities that we're getting with um, uh, gas pipelines, um, you can sidestep. Uh, there's a number of safety features I recognize could be added to it. So we could use it for oil, but it's really about pumping water in. Um, they talked about the fears. I mean, it is absurd that we would have fires that we can't put out in a matter of minutes. Um, and so when I was there in L.A., uh, back in the 80s, um, I was like, we should just have a fleet of 200 to 500 air, uh, airplanes uh, as a uh, paid for by countries from around the world. And whenever there's a fire disaster, we were able to deliver three to 500 airplanes. And what, you know, or, how, you know, if we need 5,000 airplanes, whatever the case is, to be able to put out any size fire in a matter of minutes. And especially for a freaking city next to the ocean. <laughs> it's absurd. You have the ocean right there and you can't figure out how to put the fire out. That's just, there's just such backwards thinking. Anyway, to have this fleet, all, every country and every county in the U.S., uh, every state would chip in a monthly insurance premium for this fire brigade, this air fire brigade. Uh, immigration. So the first... Uh, policy proposal I'd come up with was actually inspired uh, in the 1980s when Governor Wilson was running again. Low numbers, there was no way he was going to win. Um, and then it was the first time I got to see uh, demagoguery, which means to demonize, you know, innocent victims. Uh, he just went after the immigrants and like, oh, these immigrants are like destroying California. <laughs> 
by a hair's a hair's width, he won the election uh, simply by terrorizing, you know, the California public about how horrible immigrants were. So I spent about two years studying the issue from that election cycle. And the punchline I uh, realized was based upon uh, instance from uh, immigrant um, organizations that immigrants were paying more money than they were taking because, you know, they're getting these uh, false, uh, they're getting these social security numbers and then having to pay full taxes and insurance premiums but getting none of the benefits. So like, well, that's a relatively easy equation to work out. Um, if they paid, if they're already used to paying for those benefits anyway, just have them formalize paying for it and then they've made a contribution. Um, so I took it to a professor, Professor Hinojosa from UCLA. He was so impressed with my work. He said, if you, if you get your GDD, GD, GDP, uh, I'll get you into UCLA. And that was a whole nother. So because I grew up in India, I was, you know, at 18, I was in India, you know, as a little Buddhist monk studying the Vedas. I never went and uh, registered with the draft. And so without registering with the draft, you can't get uh, financial aid. So it took him a year to, so I started going to UCLA and it took him a year to get back to me and say, sorry, you don't qualify, you never registered. Um, and at that point I was so broke, you know, I was biking an hour and a half from Culver City to, uh, to Santa Monica College. I was spending three hours biking to and from the college. And then I was spending another, about an hour and 15 to uh, um, the Beverly Center working there at Macy's. Of course, it was only 20 minutes going downhill but it was like you know an hour and 15 going up so i just i didn't make enough money to even cover the cost of the books i had no money to take the bus that's the reason i started biking so anyway i just fell so far behind because i couldn't afford it uh, but anyway uh that would have gotten me a ticket into ucla sponsored by this professor um and so then i started doing the numbers on it that uh so the the policy pro proposal was called pay and stay securely and the idea is, is like just charge the immigrants up front for the, the, the benefits that they're going to take. And then they'll still pay the same taxes and benefits that the employers were paying, paying on their behalf, quote unquote, fraudulently. But now they'll be paid up front. So um, this will do wonders for the local economy. So you'd now have uh, cities, states and counties competing to be able to get this big cash infusion from the immigrants that we're now uh, paying up front. So who are the sponsors for it? Um, and so the first place I started, of course, was Mexico. As Trump said, oh, we're going to have Mexico pay for it. Um, and why would they want to do it? So one of the numbers that really caught my attention is the $100 billion a year. And this is from about 10 years ago. It's probably higher now. A re, uh, give, sent in remittances of money to their family um, back home. So it's $100 billion, uh, for all immigrants. For uh, Mexico, it's $35 billion a year. I'm like, okay, that's a huge number. And that's only in increments of, you know, one to two, maybe $300 a month. Just a little bit of petty cash, $35 billion a year. In other words, it's the smallest amount of money in the uh, immigration equation. So I was like, well, if Mexico were to match that, then it, in other words, a Mexican sends in 300 bucks and Mexico will match that 300 bucks to their family to start help building out that uh, family's area. And that America matched that $35 billion, that's $100 billion a year. That is a trillion dollars a decade. So now Mexico's putting in 
$350 billion, but they're getting a trillion dollars worth of cash infusion. The immigrants putting in two or 300 bucks and they're getting 900 bucks total for that, uh, for the investment. And America's putting in $350 billion, but they're getting a trillion dollars also because they're getting, uh, they're getting the same money uh, right back from the immigrant because the immigrant is paying that money uh, up front. So everyone's walking off with more money. And remember that trillion dollars from Me- so Mexico now has a new trillion dollar asset from the smallest volume, uh, the smallest uh, capital um, revenues of the immigration system. In other words, the amount of money that they're spending on rent, the amount of money that they're spending on food, et cetera, is significantly more than that. So then who's the parties that would, so then I was like, okay, who are the parties that would be interested in also helping sponsor them? You have academic institutions, you have employers, you have political organizations, you have, um, you have uh, activist organizations, you have personal, uh, you know, uh, you have communities, you know, Hispanic communities will be there for their Hispanic. Uh, you have people that are just moved by them. Um, so I identified 12 different organizations and they would help sponsor an addition to Mexico. And so now you've just, uh, you've just monetized. Monetized simply means that you've taken the five or 10 years worth of of economic activity of any given thing and sort of paid for it up front. So America, on the one side, America would now be getting trillions of dollars paid up front at the local level and, and state level. And uh, Mexico, as an example, would have now monetized its entire labor force. You know, a country like Phili- the Philippines, I mean, again, they would walk off with trillions of dollars monetizing their workforce up front. And so these are trillions of dollars worth of new assets. So the great thing about immigration is, is that it's a completely fully developed ecosystem uh, internationally. It, it remains to actually be the sing- the, probably the world's single greatest uh, infrastructure per capita of manpower and money. And it's just not been monetized. So the pay and stay immigration proposal would instantly monetize between starting at 200 trillion, probably closer to a half a trillion to potentially a quadrillion dollars worth of a new ecosystem um, uh, economic program that could be uh, activated instantly because it's all the, all the moving parts are already in place and fully developed. So uh, that's immigration. Housing. Housing is like, oh my God, housing is just... I don't want to say it's the funnest, but it's just so um, the reason why I, I started this whole political activism was to highlight what the Rada mortgage would do for the housing market and what it would do for our deficits, federal deficits. And so when the governor thing came up again, I'm just, you know, so financially strapped here. I've been working to try to refinance the house and there's always a new reason why they can't do it. I've been able to do so. I would have I jumped into the. The mix there, but to the Rada mortgage would reduce the every Californian's mortgage fifty percent. So now uh, there's three folds. Number one, they get more disposable income. Uh, number two, it's deflationary, and number three, we would be able to take a huge amount of liability off the table. Um, and we keep talking about all. I haven't really seen anything that's deflationary in terms of an economic policy. All the proposals, whether it's tax cuts 
or higher salaries or more benefits, they're all inflationary. So it just so happens that whatever stimulus is going in generally is less significant and exponentially less as time goes on than the, the penalty of inflation. Inflation is just a theory to this generation. Uh, they've never experienced hyperinflation. And so it just, it has no meaning to them. And it won't have any meaning until they're paying $100 for a loaf of bread and the house that you want to stay at cost uh, $30,000. Only then will they recognize the virulency and urgency and dreadfulness of, of uh, in hyperinflation. Anyway, because we've reduced the the amount of money in circulation through this house, uh, this house paying off the house, um, we were able to give people more spending money, but it's deflationary because the amount of money that was reduced off the mortgage is significantly more than the money, extra petty cash that they have that they're spending. So it's deflationary. So that was step one. So I wanted to run. Uh, the great news about this is that I had already pre-sold it. So I was taking it around to banks and government back in 2008. And there was one bank that was like, we are ready to go with it. And it's a financial institution called Maraza. And they're the largest financial institution for Latinos in the US. And the bank president is um, Tommy Espinoza. And he loved it. He was ready to run with it. Uh, but the point person uh, that I had met at that point was a political American foundation. A political organization and they said the the optics of having an immigration group lead this wouldn't look good in the anti-immigrant sentiments of uh the times so they 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 shut him down and they snubbed him and so he's never approached it since then so all i would need to do in my run for governor is to create the public outcry and outreach to tommy to say tommy Please run with this. Um, and he would be able to hit all the Hispanic families uh, throughout the country immediately. So it's already been pre-sold. We just need to get him back online. So that was step one. Step two was to be able to uh, assemble every consideration and resource for homelessness uh, in a 30-day period. So uh, what sort of kicked off that idea for me was actually uh, Kevin was it half Cafferty, meet Kevin, love the guy. Um, and his idea is that if he is governor, he'll declare a state of emergency. And what I've noticed about all elections is they always talk about what they're going to do after they're elected. I would like to start making a political system where you do it before you get elected. And if you deliver, then you get elected. And so I wanted to call for the uh, National Guard come in. And what we would do is we'd bring all the homeless to City Hall. And at City Hall, we would assemble every resource from government, state, city, county, and local, and uh, of the marketplace, and of nonprofits. And they would all be centered in one place. And there's just so much overlap that uh, on the one side, and there's so much resource on the other, that uh, if you brought them all into one place, they would be uh, significantly more effective with less effort because there's a lot of duplication um, 
they have an area of specialty, but they're duplicating a lot of the other services that other places are. You bring them all into one place, one center like that, uh, it would really multiply the strength and uh, they wouldn't have to take care of the other areas of paperwork. So you'd have the churches there, you would have uh, the, the uh, social security uh, services that are there, you would have the drug rehab programs there, you'd have the security issues. And then uh, as a third step, you would have the technologies for um, uh, for housing. And what I realized is, is that again, our housing architecture is about 50 years outdated. There's no reason, you know, like it's absurd that we have homes that are getting blown away by, by uh, hurricanes or flooded out or burned. So um, we look back at the this sort of backwardness of people making grass huts, you know, because they blow over mold and, you know, it's so outdated. Well, the, the architectural things that we're working with today are just completely outdated um, and nothing personified this better and proved, I think, as the simple, simple solution to housing. I believe it's called Boxable. I have to go look up their name again. Is they're absolutely amazing. They can set up a fully furnished outfitted house in one hour. Uh, they're portable, they fold up and they fold out. And they come fully um, outfitted electrically with plumbing. They have the, uh, the stove, the refrigerator, the washer and dryer, um, and if I remember, uh, and the sink. And if I remember correctly, it also has the, the furniture in some, uh, in some of their models. And you fold it out, it's turnkey, it's ready to go. If and when you're done with it, you fold it back up, takes another hour. Um, and so I realized this is the centerpiece of um, the housing technology. And so I believe there's like two to four billion dollars. I can't remember what the number is. Uh, that was already given to help alleviate the homeless, uh, the, uh, you know, the homeless issue and um, uh, people that are overextended on the rents. I would take that entire two to four billion dollars and try to double it. So we have about a, a budget of five to eight billion dollars and ramp up the production for this company to starting at 50,000 units a month. I believe that this should be at about a million. Uh, they should be at about 300,000 units per month because we need there's about five million new housing. I believe it's new housing units. It's either 5 million total sales or 5 million new housing units and then like an additional three of old housing units. Whatever the case is, 20 to 30 percent of that should be of these so we can roll it out on demand instantly. And that uh, whatever county and, and city regulations um, that uh, any county has, they need to include that to be able to um, uh, they have to include that in this new, uh, uh, what, do you, what do you call those, transformer homes. And uh, they just roll them out. And there's no reason. So at first I thought it was really about housing, but it actually isn't. The our inability to be able to build on demand is the whole, is 70% of the reason for our economic collapse from this uh, pandemic. So do you remember why they had the lockdown to begin with? What set the whole the whole lockdown off? To stop the virus from spreading. 
not to stop it from spreading. It's the same number of people that were going to get it. To keep the hospitals. Yes. To limit it the was to bend, to bend the curve. In other words, the same number of people are going to get it, but it just wouldn't all, um, it just wouldn't all bottleneck and overwhelm the hospital. And this remains to highlight one of the single greatest bottlenecks of government, which is they always slow things down to match their incompetency rather than coming up to speed with the demands of the time. And so basically we shut down, I can't remember what it is, what is it, $8 trillion or $17 trillion worth of economic activity. I don't know if that was for the country or the world. But anyway, we shut down $18 trillion worth of economic activity so we wouldn't have to build um, $500 billion worth of, of new um, medical centers. And uh, what we're actually dealing, we're giving accommodation to the dysfunctions of our healthcare system. So um, in New York, for example, if I remember correctly, it was 140 beds for 16 million people. So is that like a one and a half percent or one percent? Go ahead, go and make an, you know, uh, and what the, what they're expecting would happen is they were going to need like 300,000 beds. You know, they're going to need like twice as many or three times as many. So they shut down the entire multi-trillion dollar economies of New York rather than putting in a couple more buildings and getting another 200 beds. So, but for 200 beds, New York lost whatever it was, $5 trillion. And the centerpiece of that wasn't just the hospital beds, but it was putting in these new buildings. So then I realized this building, not just housing, but this building is sitting centerpiece to a number of so-called um failings or problems that we have, whether it's immigration, whether it's homelessness, whether it is hospitals. Um, and so this really should take center stage. And I think that in 30 days, bringing the National Guard, uh, index all the resources of, uh, of programs and services and agencies and companies that can take care of the homeless and first and foremost, scale up uh, boxable. I believe it's boxable. I think it's the name. Uh, and there's no reason why we cannot, if they want to. So what's happening is, is they're going to, uh, in the next 60 days, they're going to have all these people evicted, let them be evicted, and then put them into these new boxable homes. And what the, that will do is automatically bring down the the ex, the extreme cost of housing. You introduce the right of mortgage, which will allow all these landlords to cut their mortgages in half. And uh, based upon the uh, requirement that um, they also rent them out at 50% less, and we will have a surplus of housing literally in 120 days. So that's the housing, that's the fires, that's the water, that's immigration. That's a, that's a good approach, that's a good approach. So how can our audience out there support your party and where can they find your books? Uh, so um, I'm going to start posting the books uh, of the 18 books. Eight of them are online on lulu.com. I'm going to start uh, posting them to the only uh, internet presence I have right now is on Facebook called American Shopping Party and Ragunomics, R-A-G-H-U, Raghu, East Indian, Nomics. Uh, and that's where my, uh, that's where uh, my works are posted right now. Uh, 
I did get qualified for a $25,000 loan. So if that goes through, I should be able to afford a little something to put towards a website. So I'm hoping I can have that up for the next um, uh, month or two. Um, I have right now uh, book 17 is called the Tesla report age of the million mile warranty. So if they go to, um, if they go to Ragonomics on Facebook, they will see the latest one. And the punchline there is that uh, the Tesla, the million mile battery announcement that Tesla made, the stainless steel body um, and Tesla insurance, along with the um, electric engine, should allow them a million mile warranty. And the advantage of the million mile warranty is 30 year financing. And what 30-year financing will do is that $40,000 Cybertruck would run $139 a month, which sounds like a little, but for Tesla, they would get almost a quarter of a million dollars by year 30 uh, with that model. So they'll get five times more money if they want the 30-year financing once you've included co-pays, insurance, warranty, and upgrades. Um, and so this really, uh, so that, uh, that sounds like a lot of money to buyers that they're going to spend a quarter of a million dollars for their truck. Uh, but that actually only comes out to 25 cents a mile, um, which is uh, 70% less than what we pay per mile today. So uh, Tesla will have a truck that requires no or little down payment. It's 70% of the monthly payments and uh, is five times more revenue while the buyer uh, is uh, a smaller payment, smaller monthly payments, and is saving uh, 70 cents on a per mile basis. Uh, so it's pretty hot, and I'm waiting to finish the video on that and release that. We're hoping to get uh, Elon Musk's attention with that one. Um, but then I thought, okay, basically what we've done is we've created a true membership model. The problem that the auto industry is having in trying to create a membership model is, is that the, the, the monthly is just too high. You might as well just buy it for the, the price of the, so a lease and, and the rental models are only going out five at most eight years. So the real magic happens at 30 years or at least 15 years, which means about 500,000 miles. And so I was like, well, okay, if GM were to, you know, convert over to this, uh, at least 10, if not 15 year warranty, this 300 to 500,000 mile warranty and get everybody on that 300 bucks a month, 350, uh, their revenue and 80% of the car, let's say they have 200 million cars on the road that would uh, take that membership. GM would go from $150 billion a year, uh, which is what they make today selling new cars to 500, a half a trillion dollars a year in membership fees. So this will, be a redo of the auto industry while at the same time um, be the official announcement to the end of the of the ICE auto internal combustion engine, you know, petroleum-based, because Tesla is going to be able to provide a, a warranty that is 10 times, that is 10 times, uh, you know, the $100,000 uh, warrant, uh, warranty that the auto industry is offering today. Anyway, so that's all list that is posted there on Ragonomics. Below that one is leverage debt reduction of how we could uh, pay off uh, five to fifteen trillion dollars of our federal deficits uh, by simply refinancing 
um, today's homeowners um, mortgages, especially that's even without using uh, the Rada Mortgage uh, Program. And I'm getting ready to post book number 18, which is, uh, oh, and this is transportation, ILEV, uh, which stands for individual levitation. So we've all, um, many people have heard of, do you know what a um, magnetic levitation train is? No. So it rides on a magnetic level. It, 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 it floats uh, through a uh, magnetic levitation. So the magnets push uh, the train off the track and so it rides about uh, three inches off the track from this magnetic um, air pocket and they travel two to three hundred miles an hour and so what we're posing is is that if you can run a train a 70 ton train at two to three hundred miles an hour uh, you should have no problem running a 700 pound 200 times uh, lighter a 200 pound um, individual autocraft, you know, a little three-wheeler that then once it gets onto this rail system would now uh, levitate and go, you know, 100 miles in town and two to 300 miles in between town. Um, so this would do wonders for the auto industry. Uh, they would now have, uh, you know, consumers that would want about, they'd probably be able to sell a billion of these in the next five years. Everyone's going to want one. Basically, it's a little airplane for a couple hundred bucks a month. Um, it's 90% the footprint, basically a roller coaster, but instead of being four wide, it's going to be one. So just one person. So it's very light. You'll be able to fit, uh, you'll be able to fit 10 of these autocrafts in the space of two cars. So we'll be able to reduce, they keep talking about, you know, building underground or building more freeways, but we actually can just reduce the size of the vehicle and accomplish the same thing. And it would be 70% the size, uh, the footprint. Uh, the speed would, would be 70% faster, it would cost 70% less, and it would uh, be 70% 70, 70 smaller. So I'll be posting that uh, probably in the next week or so. And then uh, the next one is finishing up my outline for had I run for governor with those issues, with those outlines, uh, you know, everything that we just talked about from transportation to uh immigration to fires to water to um and uh the big highlight of that one is the magic bullet to government ineptitude and corruption and this would take care of 80 percent of all of those issues and uh it's called um government priced markets so whatever the government is charging for a service um if you provide the same service you would get 50 percent uh the in, you'd you'd be able to cash in at fifty percent uh, for that same service. So the cost for homelessness, for example, runs about a, I don't know between eighty to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So if you take the same homeless person and provide them shelter, you would now be guaranteed sixty thousand um, dollars. Right now, it costs I don't know, it costs three hundred thousand to five hundred thousand dollars to provide public transportation per person. If you do it, then you'd be able to get it. You know, you get a hundred thousand dollars per person that you provided to the public transportation. Is the government inefficiency there is so extreme? And uh, so this is what I was going to introduce for California. If you can do it for less than government, uh, if you can provide the same service the government is trying to provide, uh, you're guaranteed fifty percent. And if the government can't uh, cover it, then you'll get it in tax 
uh, credits. And if you take it in tax credits rather than cash, then we'll give you a 20% bonus on top of that. So the whole thing would be financed uh, up front. And uh, the inefficiencies of government is just absolutely mind-boggling. The first of which is just, uh, they call it crony capitalism, but it isn't. It's actually crony socialism, uh, where in the name of public uh, in public services, socialism, uh, you're just tag teaming with your, your circle of buddies. And the way it works isn't just that they take, you know, anywhere between 60 to 90 percent of the budgets for these public services, but that um, they do so. It's like 20 percent premium. Getting the contract to begin with isn't enough for them. Then they have to take like 50% or 100%, and generally that's not enough. They have to charge like two or three or four or 500% more than what the actual cost is. So there's the, there's the entitlement that, of course, I'm going to get 80% of the budget. And then on top of it, the contempt that, you know, of course, I will only do it if I get 200 or 500% more. And this is true of every government building, you know, somebody's brother, niece, uncle, or business associate, you know owns the land, if not the building that is being contracted. Uh, the housing here in Hawaii, for example, you know, the, the market value is like 900 bucks. But, you know, with the specially connected, they were able to get county housing to pay them 1700 bucks. And this is true of all government services. Uh, so uh, that pony socialism um, is an extraordinary inefficiency. So to beat it becomes relatively easy. Uh, another one is, like I said, uh, government always slowing everything down in order to match them, their incompetency, rather than them coming up to speed with what needs to be done. And the best example, of course, was the um, the virus. Rather than just coming up with a few more hospitals and hospital beds, they decided to shut down uh, tens of trillions of dollars worth of economic activity rather than just building some hospitals. Um, uh, anyway, the, the list goes on of... of uh, different areas. Another one is uh, political sabotage because the other side's doing it. You have to, you know, you have to shut them down. So this adds to the cost and the time frame of doing it. Um, another one is making things idiot-proof. Uh, what better example than 9/11? Uh, so there, the government was being informed it was on the president's desk. Uh, they're going to, you know, ram some planes into the buildings. Uh, you should be on the lookout for it. Meanwhile, out in Florida, they're like, these guys are learning how to, you know, um, uh, take off with a plane, but they're not letting, so, you know, and they're Muslims, and, you know, this is a red flag. They didn't follow through with that one. Russia was there. You're probably going to get hit with planes. There's a terrorism plot. They weren't able to follow that one. So then they came out with um, making our security idiot-proof, which means that 99% uh, of the people and situations that are not a threat all have to be made idiot proof because the president couldn't figure out that we we're going to be attacked by a tourist, even though the report was on his page uh, on his desk and he was told so. So this idiot proofing things adds an extraordinary price uh, to getting the job done. Another big one is um, the success of failure. So every time government fails, the reward for failure is just through the roof. So the, the VA fails. So now they get three times as much money. Our schools fail. They get three times as much money. Uh, so whatever the, the real reward comes from failure with government. Anyway, so whatever the different scenarios of, of government uh, failing, um, it the punchline is, is that adds more price to the finished product. 
And so what I would have done as a California governor is, is that if you can provide the same service, you get 50% of that price. And it does two things. It allows you to sidestep trying to correct the corruption. You can't. If there's any hint that you would stop that corruption, they'll shut you down. So the media and the politicians and the bankers and the business community, they're all in on the game and they have a thousand and one ways to shut you down. So you don't want to play with the Godfather. You know, as Jesus Christ said, uh, what did he say? Give unto the Mafia Don. What is the Mafia Dons? Back in the day, they called them the Caesar. It's sort of the same thing. So, um, you know, I don't want to try to stop the the mafias. Like, you know, I'm Italian. Like, you don't play with the Godfather. Um, and this wouldn't really impinge on what they're doing. They can still, you know, have their their uh, their projects of corruption, but it will allow the marketplace to begin building out alternatives to it without infringing on, on the corruption. So that was really the centerpiece of the campaign, uh, the rata mortgage, the housing, uh, the, the portable, the, uh, the uh, inflatable uh, pipeline, the ILEV, maglevs. The maglevs is just, maglevs is magnetic uh, levitation, the transportation system. People would pay about 10 cents a mile uh, versus the 17 is what we calculated. Oil companies would be we'd, uh, offering one-third the price, uh, one-third the profits that they get uh, out of oil. So that way they get the oil company buy-in um, to it. And that we would now issue dollars against the Meglev and it would be used on the Meglev. So it would be deflationary. That sounds so, good. I'm sorry. Yeah, so uh, the maglev transportation system is a duplicate of the petrodollar, but the petrodollar is very—it's just very loosely correlated to the uh, petroleum, and now it's—it's uh, it's now printed up far beyond, uh, you know, oil produced. Um, whereas with the megdollar maglev levitation freeway system, it would be issued against each mile, each mile produced. Uh, so it'd be a, a closed, uh, a very tightly produced uh, financial system, currency system. And um, uh, it would, right now, the, the petrodollar is against about 20 or 30 percent of the oil produced, whereas in our case, the, the mag dollar would be against 100 percent of the miles driven. So it's a, a much broader asset than the petrodollar. It would also then include the real estate next to it, and it would include the retail uh, to it. So we think that we'd be able to, the mag dollar would be able to provide a asset value between three to as much as 10 times of the value, the asset value that the petrodollar is offering uh, with the ICE engine um, model today. So... Uh, anyway, that's the run for governor. That's the American Shopping Party, and that is Regonomics. Excellent. Our audience can go there. So we want to thank you for coming on our show and sharing all your ideas with us. Our audience, I trust, will love hearing about those ideas. Well, let me just say that this this is the this is um, personifying the urgent need for third parties, these kinds of ideas. I'm not attached to any of these proposals. These proposals are simply working models start a new discussion. And this is the reason why we need to have long-lived third parties.
Yes, exactly. So thank you for your time today. Thank you for taking your time out of your day. And all the best to you and your party. Have a beautiful week. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Big aloha from the Big Island of Hawaii. Take care. Bye now.